The Weeds is sponsored by Wink. Go to trywink.com slash weeds and you'll get $20 off your first order plus complimentary shipping. It's also sponsored by NatureBox. NatureBox is offering the Weeds fans three free snacks with your first order when you go to naturebox.com slash weeds. We, we have like reached my breaking point oh, on no. discussions on healthcare. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, uh, joined by Ezra Klein and Sarah Cliff. We're really excited to talk about uh, healthcare for a change. Sarah was saying, <laughs> was saying this morning that we we never really we never really get to focus on the subject. I might have reached my breaking point in how much I can discuss healthcare, which I didn't know existed yeah, until this week. I can't say I can't tell you how surprised I was when Sarah came in here today and was like, "Oh, like we're talking about healthcare again." I didn't think we could get here, but here we are. It here has been. Are. It feels like actually eons since we taped Friday's episode, because since then we have had the Congressional Budget Office report on the bill, and we have had the vote delayed um, to an unknown date. So it really feels like a lot has happened in literally four days. Would you say your exhaustion of talking healthcare is a pre-existing condition? <laughs> God, <laughs> that's terrible. That's terrible. Okay. okay. <laughs> so we are going to talk about. We're going to talk about the CBO report that came out Monday. We're going to talk about what is next for the BCRA, which we've never really decided. The acronym never really stuck. We've never had a debate about how to pronounce Matt that. Matt has a strong view on this, I believe. What do you think it, it is? It, see, you guys, you guys are young. But <laughs> back in the day, we had the McCain-Feingold campaign finance reform or Bi- Bipartisan Campaign Finance Reform Act, BCRA. And it was called BICRA. Wait, what about B- – Wait, what happened to the what, F? What happened to the F? I don't know. <laughs> the point is, is that everybody called it BICRA. It was BICRA, BICRA, BICRA. And then there was BICRA litigation. The Supreme Court threw out some major BICRA provisions. And, you know, the man who killed BICRA was the then somewhat obscure Mitch McConnell led the charge. Uh, he, he was defeated legislatively, ultimately prevailed in the courts. And now and he, now is he here has brought it back to the Bikra, Senate with an Bikra. acronym that he knows and loves. <laughs> a final, final victory over the original Bikra by completely replacing it as an acronym. Exactly. It'll be wiped out. From now on, Bikra <laughs> will mean the Better Care Reconciliation Act. Okay, so let's talk about, let's start with the CBO report, which came out Monday afternoon. And I think there was an expectation the Senate has had a bit of time to work on this. They saw the terrible reaction the House bill got. Certainly they would come up with a with a bill that got a better CBO score in terms of its coverage. Definitely. <laughs> Definitely, right? Like they saw this blowback. You have a number of senators who are worried about Medicaid expansion. Definitely did not happen. So we get the CBO report that estimates that 22 million fewer Americans would have coverage if this became law. Very few low-income Americans would enroll in coverage. And I think we'll circle back to that point in a moment because it is a big deal. The deficit reduction would be much more significant, um, $321 billion cut from the deficit over the next decade. But essentially, the CBO report really says that this bill looks a lot like what we had in the House, that it is essentially structurally the same. And if you go back and look at the Senate bill, like knowing this finding, you know, Reading it, you say, yeah, of course, like it ends Medicaid expansion. It reduces the subsidies on the marketplace. It was a little bit of wishful thinking that like something different would happen in the CBO report. But I think one of the key points like that Ezra and I both really zoomed in on reading that was this line. Do you have it highlighted? I can see I Ezra's I'm, highlighted I'm, report. Can I you read? I have a whole highlighted CBO <laughs> the report. Highlighted. So I think exciting. it's this line about the fact that even though there are 
subsidies still in this bill, they are so low that low-income people certainly would just decide not to purchase health coverage. So this is on page eight, for those of you following along at home. (laughs) So get your CBO report out. Get your CBO reports out, your highlighters. So what the CBO does is it looks at two things. There's What's really important here is, is recognizing that they routinely look at two kinds of insurance in this report. One is a kind of insurance that Obamacare uses as its core insurance right now, a silver plan, which covers 70% of expected health care costs. And then there's the, the BICRA's core kind of insurance, which is 58% of expected health care costs. And, and CBO says, look, if you have insurance like that, you're going to be looking at for an individual a deductible of around $6,000. So they are, if you're poor, right? If, you, if you're if you low income, if you make $10,000, $12,000 a year, you're looking at a deductible that is fully 50% or more of your annual earnings. And, and that's not something you can actually pay. So what CBO says is that beginning in 2020, which is when a lot of the tax credit changes happen, the premium for a silver plan would typically be a relatively high percentage of income for low income people. The deductible for a plan with an actuarial value of 50% would be a significantly higher percentage of income, also making such a plan unattractive, but for a different reason. As a result, and here's a key line, despite being eligible for premium tax credits, few low-income people would purchase any plan. And so what they're saying is that a silver plan is too expensive because though it will cover you, the tax credits no longer cover the premiums. A 58% plan is too expensive because a deductible is so high you would go bankrupt more or less before you actually got through it. And given those two things, you're just not going to purchase insurance at all. So what Republicans have done is create a plan. That literally, despite its tax credits, makes health insurance too expensive for poor people to purchase. That is what their plan does. That is a big part of why you have a coverage loss of $22 million. And a deficit reduction. And a deficit you reduction. You have these exactly. tax credits that no one's using. We actually spend a fair amount of time speculating about this on, on Fridays. It was good to see the, the CBO come out with basically what what we were saying nobody nobody would use this and i think they probably just listened and that's how they did it (laughs) i think it's it's important because this idea of high deductible plans is it's in this legislation in part just to sort of save money but it's also quite central to what conservatives have been saying about health care for a long time is that you know you can protect people against financial catastrophe but that all this sort of first dollar coverage is is wasteful and that to bring costs down we need to have people bearing more out-of-pocket costs and the basic logic of what the cbo says about this would carry over to sort of any effort, right? There was the the health savings accounts mania. Um, there, there's this particular version of it. There's whatever it is conservatives think Singapore's healthcare is like, and it and it all comes back to this same sort of basic issue, which is that if you're living paycheck to paycheck on twelve thousand dollars a year in a country where the unit costs of healthcare are much much higher than they are anyplace else, you just you can't pay. And it doesn't do anything to say, okay, well, we're going to give people these high deductible plans and then they'll be prudent in their usage. What's going to happen is poor people are going to avoid any kind of routine health care because they can't afford it. And then if they feel so sick that they want to drag themselves to the emergency room, they're going to do that. And there's no there's no like magic trick alternative to giving low income people either money or free health care that like nothing nothing else works yeah can i actually borrow a page of your report yeah which page page, page, i'd like page 48 okay well that one's easy to find because that's right at the end it's at the end it's the second to last page so if you're following along you can also pull up this 
I think it's 48. Yeah, it's 48. So I think it's helpful to like bring a few numbers to this. And there's this table five illustrative examples of subsidies for non-group health insurance in 2016 under current law and Better Care Reconciliation Act of 2017. So I think this is actually like super helpful in driving home this idea. So they look at and it's really um, this problem becomes super acute for older Americans and even older middle income Americans. One of the things I was surprised that they actually are hit some of the hardest here. So if you look at someone who is 64 years old under um, under BICRA, you will see that their premiums just go up really significantly. For a 64-year-old earning $26,000, for example, their expected premium goes up from 1700 to 6500 Is that for the, the silver or the, the So that's 58%. for – that is for the silver plan – and then for the – sorry, I'm like reading this table. Right I, I think that's the right yes. one to focus on actually. Yeah. I feel that really okay. strongly. So yeah. So th- this one we're essentially talking about like the silver plan. For someone who earns $56,000, which is um, you know 375% of the poverty line, it's right at the top of the subsidies in the ACA but beyond the subsidies in the Senate bill. The expected premium for a silver plan goes from 6800 to $20,500. So again, this is someone who's earning $56,800. We're talking about that person being expected to contribute more than a third of their health insurance. Are you like trying to... Is that the net premium? That's that's after all the credits? Well, so there's no credits in the BCRA because they've just gone out of the subsidy range. So I think that's one of the things that's kind of notable about the change. And this has always been the group that's really struggled a lot with the premiums in the ACA or the people right at the top of the subsidy threshold or in BCRA, like right above the subsidy threshold. And again, this is to get the same plan, the premiums would more than triple under the... Um, Senate bill for someone who is like not wealthy by any means, but right above that income threshold. So we're talking about some pretty dramatic differences. Um, If you look on my Twitter, Alvin Chang did some great charts of what these look like. And it's really just a really stunning difference. And this gets to some of the piping hot bullshit Republicans are serving up about <laughs> premiums in this plan. The the argument they keep making, which happened when the House health bill got its CBO score too, was they keep saying, oh, the CBO score proves, it proves that premiums go down. And it does not prove that. What What is happening here is that CBO says a lot of older and sicker people will be driven out. And also everybody else is going to be pushed into garbage insurance. And that garbage insurance is going to have lower premiums. But Kaiser Family Foundation did a, a really useful thing. Thing. And they looked at just apples to apples premiums and silver plans in the, in, the, in the two bills. And they found that if you're trying to get a decent, decent health insurance and a silver plan, I just want to say it is not generous health insurance. Um, 70 percent. That's why it's not gold <laughs> or, platinum. <laughs> or platinum, which is even more generous. But I do want to make this point for a minute because I, I do think this can get lost. Employer plans, which is what I think most of us think of, it's sort of the standard in, in American healthcare um, for people who aren't seniors, tend to cover around 84% of actuarial value. So they, they, they cover, if I'm remembering these numbers right, about 84% of expected healthcare costs. A silver plan is much lower than that. So you're already talking about health insurance that if your employer offered it to you, you'd be pissed off. It's not what most people get. And it's not even, we're not even talking here about the real gold plated employer plans. We're just talking about sort of your normal average plan your employer gets you. What Obamacare offers you is worse than that. And what the Berka, Bikra, Bikra is doing is much worse yet than that. And, and so what Senate Republicans are saying, what House Republicans said before them, is that by pushing people into these garbage plans that have lower premiums, they're somehow doing them a favor. But what people want in health insurance is protection from 
catastrophic healthcare costs. They we you we're in a country right now where Oh, God, maybe one of you remember this number. Cap uses it a lot that I think it's about half of people cannot afford a four hundred dollar unexpected uh, expense. Does I think that? it's somewhere around. Do you, oh, do you, do you yeah. not trust that number? I mean, that that is what the survey says. OK, so maybe it's true. Maybe I not, think but it a is lot, fair to say a lot of people cannot yes, handle a, lo- a, a like large medical. A bill. lot of people cannot handle a five thousand dollar medical yes. expenses where <laughs> I'm going with that, which I, I think is pretty true. And so you're moving people into these plans that are really not what they want to get from health insurance. You're not making health insurance affordable for them, nor is this sort of baseline catastrophic plans. I think a useful contrast with this is to look at the Cassidy Collins plan, which, Sarah, you understand a lot better than I do. But but in the part of that where they allow states to go in their own direction, mm-hmm. sort of in the sort of what I would call the conservative plan variant of Cassidy Collins, they give you like a pre-filled HSA, right? Yeah, this has never been super fleshed out because they've never put numbers to it. But at least conceptually, the idea is you'd have a high deductible plan, but it would be paired with some amount of HSA funding that would kind of like cover your first few things. And the idea, the hope is, and, you know, again, I'm a little skeptical of how this would work. They would fund an HSA. There would be definitely a donut hole between like the HSA funding and your deductible, but you'd have something up front. The the reason I bring that up is that I think it gets to the core problem of the Senate bill. So there's a really useful chart um, early on in the CBO report, and they basically go through it and look at what's costing money and what's saving money. Which page are we on now? We're we're on page five. (laughs) Great. and the the cost of the tax cuts is about $540 billion. So if you were not doing that, right, if you were not spending $540 billion cutting taxes, you could do a lot more on coverage. You could have much lower deductibles. You could keep the Medicaid expand. I mean, there's all kinds of things you could do that would be useful if you were not spending $540 billion cutting taxes. And then you could – do something that looks more like the actual plans that when conservatives think about this thoughtfully, they get to, right? You pay for some first dollar coverage. Maybe you have a donut hole in the middle. Then you get up to, um, you know, catastrophic insurance so that, you know, if you have to pay more than a thousand or two thousand out of pocket, that's covered for you. But because they have to somehow fund these massive tax cuts, they're not doing any of that. And so what they've come up with is a plan that there is just no one who or very few people, I don't want to say there are literally no winners for them from this plan on the insurance markets, but there are very few people who would be happy with what's going on here. Just no Republicans when they were attacking Obamacare said that what people really want is 58% actuarial value plans with 6,000 or higher deductibles. And note that, by the way, for a family, I can go find the number in here that CBO actually has, but for a family, that deductible would be much higher. I think it's something in the 11,000 range, although I'll find it. Um, this is bad. Like, this is just a bad plan. Uh, and the CBO report is honestly worse than I expected for them. I mean, it's an it's an indefensible kind of healthcare policy. Yeah, I mean, I wanted to talk about it, just like a couple of side points of that. One is that CBO says there's going to be about 4 million people losing employer-sponsored coverage in the short term, um, which I, I think is because the uh, Obamacare imposes a fee on large employers that don't provide coverage to their employees, uh, which has been discussed to some extent as something that might restrain companies from hiring or cause them to cut hours. Uh, But it also induces companies to provide health insurance, uh, which is going to be lost. It was also – it's curious to me actually how front-loaded the coverage losses are. I had kind of 
fallen for the legend of, of Mitch McConnell and had sort of assumed that they would structure this so that people were losing coverage in like 2021 or something like that. But most of the coverage loss happens right away. And then there's a little bit more. But then what's tacked on at the end, right, like outside the whole window is this sort of strangulation of Medicaid in the long run. Um which is worth talking about. I mean, C- CBO mentions it, uh, but they mention it mostly to say, like, this isn't in our score. Uh, but but the way this works is that there's a couple different transition phases. But ultimately, Bikra gets you with a bill where you have a sort of per-person funding stream coming to your state for Medicaid, and that grows at the growth rate of overall consumer price inflation. So consumer price inflation has been lower than the healthcare cost subindex since the beginning of time. Um, I don't think anybody has any reason to believe it will ever not be lower. And so this means basically that states will be getting money. They'll saying, okay, you have this many children, this many disabled people, this many elderly people who you're covering. And the amount of money you have to provide them with healthcare services will grow more slowly than the cost of giving them healthcare services. And so then state governments are going to be in a bind where basically they can either kick in more of their own money to sort of cover the gap or else they can apply for a block grant. Uh, because under a block granting scheme, they will be able to write their own eligibility rules to basically say, well, within each category, I'm going to actually not cover the most disproportionately expensive people. So it's like it's like really cruel and sick, right? Like nobody would propose a law that says our program to provide health care to disabled people should not cover the most severely disabled people. But so they're kicking it. I mean, this is often like the block granting scheme is they're just saying, well, you can do what you want, Mr. Governor. But like mathematically, there's no way to do this, right? If you have a pool of money that's fixed on a per capita basis and it grows too slowly to meet everybody's healthcare needs, you have to find the above average needs people and kick them off your program. Like otherwise it's not it's not going to work in any kind of way or you can restructure. I mean, you could try to restructure Medicaid to have a lower actuarial value. But for for all the reasons you guys were talking about on the exchange plans, like it doesn't it doesn't work. You know, a a coverage plan for people with no money, it it can't have a five thousand dollar deductible. It doesn't it doesn't accomplish anything. And so that's not in the CBO score, but it's a huge conceptual change. And it has. I mean, it has nothing to do with any of the issues that people have been talking about with Obamacare for the past seven, eight, nine years, right? Like, whatever you think, whatever Republicans think they promised, whatever voters think they don't like about it, like nobody said, well, starting nine years from now, we need to have Medicaid not cover people. Yeah. In fact, the Medicaid coverage has actually been much more popular than the marketplace coverage. I think it's because you have like the incredibly high, like an actuarial value, probably somewhere around like 95 or 98 percent where the program's covering nearly all the cost of enrollees. So one thing I found, and this will segue us a little bit into kind of what's going on in the Senate since then. One thing I found very interesting was you saw after this report came out and really, you know, as the bill, the vote fell apart yesterday on Tuesday, You saw a handful of senators saying, we can't support this bill because of this deep cuts it makes to Medicaid. But, you know, a lot of statements from people like Rob Portman, Charlie Moore Capito, um, Dean Heller. But no one went as far to say, 
and therefore we need to keep some of these taxes. Like, therefore, we need to keep the money that pays for Medicaid. And I thought that was a really interesting encapsulation of where the Senate debate is right now, that clearly there is a lot of frustration with the amount of cuts to programs. There are legislators from Medicaid expansion states who are quite worried about what this would mean. But I have not seen anyone, any senator, raise the idea that, okay, here's how we fix it. Like, it seems like that's the thing you do. You get more funding to the program. Um, you, You keep some of these revenue raisers in the ACA. And I think it really speaks to the commitment to getting rid of the ACA taxes and that not being something that's negotiable in this debate. Like that is that seems like the clear solve. If you were looking at like, well, how do we fix this Medicaid thing? How do we get Susan Collins and Rob Portman and Shelley Moore Capito and Dean Heller on board? Well, you keep some of the taxes and you don't roll back Medicaid as much. But that just seems like a fixed part of the debate at this point in a way I don't think I fully got before the CBO score and seeing those statements. Before we move on to that piece of it, because I think that what you're bringing up is crucial, I want to go back to something Matt said about how quickly the coverage loss happens, because this is, I think, an interesting technical debate over the CBO report and over how to think about healthcare more generally. And it's something, it's a place where conservatives feel the CBO is wrong. And they, for all I know, they actually may be right. I don't have a strong view here. But the major tax credit changes begin in 2020. So between here and 2020, you're not seeing these new tax credits come in. But what you do see is the end of the individual mandate. You know the system is changing. So there's a lot of uncertainty about what insurers are going to do. And so CBO projects real massive coverage changes. Um, I'm not actually sure. I, I should have looked at this before I began talking when the Medicaid change happens. Uh, when So the phase the, down, that, yeah, it starts in 2021. Yeah. But I think they expect, you know, it's a slow phase down but they expect it'll actually be a very quick phase out because of any funding loss will lead to fewer states expanding. But so CBO is expecting a real massive change in coverage uh, beginning again in 2018. And that's in part because they have a very, very high estimation of how much coverage the individual mandate (laughs) is creating. I don't really know if that's correct. I, I sort of buy that this that this bill as a whole is going to lead to massive coverage losses. I am not 100% convinced that coverage losses will be front-loaded in the way CBO has them. And I'm curious if you buy that. Yeah, I kind of – I agree with conservative critiques that the CBO seems to overrate the individual mandate as a policy. Um, I think it's a relatively weak mandate. I think the one there is a decent amount of survey research suggesting that and people I've talked to, you know, who are on Obamacare, something about it being a mandate seems to motivate people. Like when I ask people, why do you have this health insurance plan you hate? They'll say, well, it's the law, you know, and I have to abide by the law. But it's a small penalty. And I am I don't think there's like super good research at this point to like back it up as a lot stronger than the waiting period. And you do see in this report, they seem to think a little more highly of this waiting period in the Senate bill, this six-month lockout, if you are someone who doesn't keep continuous coverage. CBO thinks that will work a little bit better than the penalty in the House plan, which is this surcharge on health insurance um, when people with a break enter the market. But I'm curious how CBO has decided the individual mandate is so powerful. Um, I think one of the other important things happening in this bill that that does prop up the individual market for these two years and sets it up for a crash is they're they're appropriating funding for these cost-sharing reductions for two years. They're appropriating some short-term stabilization. So they actually are going to really prop up the individual market for the next two years if this bill were to pass. But that only sets it up for the biggest crash when they come out of that because then – 
those cost-sharing reduction subsidies, those don't exist in the Senate system. Um, those subsidies to offset deductibles and co-pays for low-income Americans. Um, anyways, that was a long-winded answer, too, <laughs> to what the individual mandate question. does. Sitting down and relaxing with a great glass of wine is a way to enhance the moment of Almost no matter what you're doing, you know, if you're reflecting on the day you're with someone you love, it's a, it's a great, you know, it's a fun way to sort of experience life. And and Wink understands this. That's why they started their company. It's to give people access to exceptional wines from around the world so that you can have more of those moments. Uh, so so here's how it works. You go to trywink.com. It's spelled T-R-Y-W-I-N-C.com. You take a brief palate profile quiz, uh, and then they're going to recommend distinct and interesting wines actually customized to your palate to be shipped directly to your door every Every month, uh, so so you don't need to waste time uh, on your way to a store or you know hassling uh, on the way to an event or, or on the way home. And, and it's even most important, you don't need to spend time sort of looking at labels, blindly guessing at what you like, because Wink bases the wines they send you on your taste preferences. They'll even introduce you to new, rare, and custom wines that aren't available anywhere else, and they'll tell you the story behind each one. So so basically, it's like you're getting a sort of upscale, fancy sommelier experience, uh, you know, with a whole sort of story about where the wines from, what it's like, why it's well suited to your tastes, but you're getting it, you know, through technology, through the mail uh, for very affordable prices. Uh, their bottles start at $13. You know, you can you can drink wine without breaking the bank, but have a really high-end, delightful wine experience. Uh, so you join for free, you skip any month, you cancel any time, and you have a 100% satisfaction guarantee, so you never pay for a bottle you don't like. Right now, Wink is offering listeners $20 off their first order when you go to trywink.com slash weeds. Uh, they'll even cover the cost of shipping. So that's trywink, spelled T-R-Y-W-I-N-C dot com slash weeds to get $20 off your first order plus complimentary shipping. Trywink.com slash weeds. Things fell apart in the Senate in, in a pattern that exactly <laughs> mirrors what happened in the house, right? I mean, it, it, it's exactly the same thing. So first off, basically, a critical mass of conservatives raised objections to the bill, right? So Rand Paul, uh, Mike Lee, Ted Cruz, and Ron Johnson all kind of said, this isn't real Obamacare repeal. So missing those four votes, you can't pass the bill. So on its face, like, that's it. That's all she wrote. So then... Once that happened, sort of other objections started popping out from the left. Uh, Susan Collins came out with the clearest statement, I would say, where she said, like, this is bad. Too many people are losing coverage. We should try to do a bipartisan bill. Dean Heller made a statement that was less clear as to what it was he wanted to see happen. Um, but it was very uh, public in a weird way. He like went with the governor of Nevada, who's like the last sort of – his uh, Brian Sandoval, he's like this kind of moderate Republican figure out of a time warp um, who's very, very popular in, in, in the state. And they kind of stood up together and they were like, this is not good. This is going to be bad, bad for Nevada. But at the same time, Heller has like back-channeled to donors that he wants to get to yes. Um, so that's two. They can lose – Two, they can't lose a third, right? Or, or it won't pass. Wait, two in addition to the four on the there's right. There's the four, right? Yeah. But, but I want to, yes. but I want to keep the kinds Got, of objections separate, yeah. right? So there's a killer block on the right and an almost killer block 
on the left. So then those two are joined by uh, Shelley Moore Capito, uh, Lisa Murkowski, and Rob Portman, mm-hmm. who have sort of voiced objections, but not that stridently, not that clearly, and in a context when the vote was already not going to pass, right? So the question hanging out there is, if you assume that Heller and Collins mean what they say, right, they do not want to see this number of people lose health insurance. To make that happen, those two senators need to recruit a third like-minded Republican senator, right? And they need to work together in a clear way. I mean, this is sometimes like weird stuff happens where like Republican senators profess to not like where leadership is going and they like forget how legislating works. But the way legislating works, right, is that if you want a change, you form a critical blocking group of senators, right? Like Heller and Collins could have done an event together rather than separately. And if they could get Murkowski or Portman or Capito or anybody else to go with them and they could say, here are our demands. It could be demands about coverage, you know, that they want to make of Mitch McConnell, or it could be demands about process, right? They could say, this whole idea of a partisan repeal is a mistake. It repeats the mistakes that Obama made. I'm going to start a working group with Joe Manchin and, and whomever. So far, they haven't done that. So you're left with the possible repeat of what happened in the House, which is that if Mitch McConnell can talk to the conservative objectors and get them on board with one of these sort of regulatory hijinks that that they seem to like, then you can pivot around with the United Caucus and you can put squarely to Lisa Murkowski, to Rob Portman, to Shelley Moore Capito. I've been mispronouncing her name for weeks. Capito. Is that right? Yes. Okay. I have important <laughs> West Virginia sources. Um, and say to them, look, do you want to be the reason that this bill fails? And what we saw in the House was that nobody wanted to be that person. Right. There were plenty of Republicans in Hillary Clinton districts who seemed like they wished the bill would be made more moderate, but they didn't want to do anything to make it become more moderate, like kill the bill. And we haven't yet seen, I think, the moderate Republican senators express a clear willingness to to do something like that. So I'm I'm very suspicious of the whole thing. I mean, to me. This Mike Lee, Ted Cruz type objections looks – since we saw the playbook in the House, it, it just looks like they would be idiots to not run the same play. But also that you know they'll get a bone. Maybe they'll get two bones and they'll be like, wait, this is a giant tax cut, right? Which is like what conservatives want. Although, I will say Mike Lee actually came out – I think it was Mike Lee – and said – one of the problems with this bill is it is a tax cut for rich people on the backs of poor people. Mike Lee has sort of interesting views yes. on taxes in the in the Republican he, conference. He, I was fascinated to see that, though. He did say that. Um, Ron, Ron Johnson said the problem with the bill was that it's too partisan, although he also said that the problem with the bill is that it, like, leaves any regulation of the health insurance industry. Yeah, Ron Johnson is a baffling figure in, in this debate. So, a, so a, a veteran Wisconsin journalist told me a couple months ago that the thing you have to understand about Ron Johnson is that he reminds him of Herb Cole. And Herb Cole, if those of you remember him, was a conventional liberal Democrat. So he, he doesn't remind him of Herb Cole uh, – ideologically. What he meant by that was that Herb Cole, people would say, was the dumb guy in the Senate. 
and and that that is Ron Johnson's rep in Wisconsin as well. He says things that don't make sense because he's kind of dumb. So I, I would not count on him to like be the deciding voice on this legislation one, one way or the other. And, and I think it really – it comes down to – you know, Susan Collins has been a high-profile legislator for like her whole career. And I would be hard-pressed to say that she's been an incredibly effective legislator. You know, she she tend to like – Bush wants a tax cut. She makes the tax cut a little bit smaller. Obama wants a stimulus. She makes the stimulus a little bit smaller. Mitch McConnell wants to take 22 million people off their health insurance. Maybe she'll make it 21 million. She has the opportunity potentially to like reshape the trajectory of this debate, but she's never really used her swing vote status to to do that and she she's never she, she's not like a like a dynamo well what's interesting about that is that collins is signed on to the cassidy collins bill which is a much more ambitious and ideologically interesting attempt at health care reform and her cassidy and um heller right if, if like mm-hmm. just the three of them could like force a whole new debate around their bill i think at this point a lot of democrats would actually be interested in negotiating around that bill but just nobody seems to be doing it there's a very funny moment where and, and i hope i don't get the quote uh, a little bit wrong here but somebody asked john mccain uh just two days ago you know well if you have all these problems with the bill are, are you going to vote for are, why why are you still voting for it and he said oh that's not how this works you don't get whatever you want and does people point it out? No, no, that that is how this works. Like what you do is you say, you know, you you add yourself to the Collins Heller caucus and then they have to give you what you want. And there is a decision being made by a lot of these folks to sort of like make snide remarks about the process and say like, oh, the CBO score really isn't good. But but to not do much about that. So there's a real question of, of where are they going, where they want to go. I mean, this is to me one of the more fundamental problems you've seen throughout the whole debate. Republicans and and this is not some like weird view of mine like every Republican healthcare wonk will tell you this like they will tell you this all the time Republican members of Congress overwhelmingly do not care about do not understand and do not like working on healthcare and and you actually see it in the process one reason there was not a process around this bill the way there was around the Affordable Care Act is that Max Baucus and originally Ted Kennedy but then later Tom Harkin and all kinds of Democrats Henry Waxman, they wanted to spend a long time working on a health care bill. Like that was an exciting thing for them to do in their lives. Like they had always wanted to do this. They came to it with really strong opinions. Their staffs had really strong opinions. Everybody wanted a piece of the health care bill. And so it was split between all these committees. You had Ways and Means and Energy and Commerce and Finance and Help. And I think a third one in the House I'm forgetting. Um, maybe Sarah will remember it. Wait, there was a third one, but maybe I forgot what it was. Education? Maybe. Something? Oh, I think it's like health education something. I forget what it's called in the House. Anyway, Democrats are interested in health care and they wanted to work on it. Republicans are not that interested in health care and so they don't want to work on it. They're interested in tax reform and they want to work on that. And so like if that goes through, I kind of expect it will not look the way this did because all kinds of people want a piece of that fight. But one of the issues here is just a lot of these Republicans, they know this isn't good. But they don't know what is good. Yeah. They do not have their ideal in their mind, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of Democrats are like, I want single payer. Or, you know, I feel good about the Massachusetts plan. Or there is stuff like the Wyden-Bennett. With the exception of someone like Cassidy, there just was not much of that around the House. There's like the Tom Price plan, the Paul Ryan plan. And like you start running out of it real quickly. Yeah, I was on a panel yesterday where someone asked me, like, who is the the Max Bacchus of the Senate Republicans? I don't actually think they're 
Like, no one comes to mind. I think Cassidy is someone who's, like, thought a lot about health policy, but he isn't really at the forefront. Like, he's not driving this train. He has this bill that's not really getting much traction. And I think it is certainly true when you look at the history of health policy legislation that it is typically driven by Democrats. Like, usually Republicans just focus on something else when they're legislating, on tax policy and other issues. And then it's the Democrats who often, like, drive the train. I guess, you know, Part D, Medicare drug expansion was a little bit different, but there isn't a lot of the history of, like, what are we aiming for, like, the desire to draft this. Like, it wasn't, like, the plum assignment to to draft the Senate health care bill as it really kind of was during the Affordable Care Act debate. I'm really curious to see where this Senate debate goes in the next few weeks, because I 100 percent agree with Matt that this feels like a complete rerun of what happened in the House. And I think the House... It was really instructive uh, to me to think about the House debate where, you know, they couldn't get the votes together. Paul Ryan goes on TV. He declares Obamacare as the law of the land. And then it felt like Republican legislators kind of like went home to their districts and thought about what they did and like had this like moment where they had to like really reckon with this. And they came back to D.C. like ready to bargain and ready to get something done. I thought um, Phil Klein at the Washington Examiner, he had a tweet Wednesday morning. They thought, you know, it was pretty spot on that. Republicans in the Senate have decided to go with the time-tested strategy of striking bargains while everyone analyzes Trump's crazy tweets. And that's really how it felt like the House process went down. And I I think it is notable that McConnell is not going the Ryan route of saying, like, this is the law of the land and we're done. And he didn't have a failed vote. I think there's some speculation that Mitch McConnell just wanted a vote. He wanted to get done with health care. If it failed, it failed. If it passed, it passed. You know, he was not going to let this go past the July 4th recess. We've seen that certainly isn't true, that a failed vote is not something he was willing to go forward with. And I think, like, July will be a really big test of where this bill goes, whether they can get people on board with it. But one of the things that was interesting was we saw some, you know, moderate Republicans in the House really take some very small concessions and and take those and run with those and decide that was enough with like Fred Upton and his $8 billion fund for um, pre-existing conditions. And who knows? I mean, we could see something similar from the Senate. So I, I think it is very up for debate and feels to me very not over at this point. I just I do want to say, for one thing, it, it was barely even bargaining that happened in the House, right? Because <laughs> yeah. what happened was was that moderates initially reacted to the bill, and they were like, oh, this has too much coverage loss. Then changes were made that did not reduce the coverage loss. One, one million. <laughs> okay. <laughs> they didn't, but, but, but they, you're right. But so they, they added in a provision. Initially, a Republican as central to the debate as Paul Ryan had said that maintaining regulatory protections for people with pre-existing conditions was a core part of the GOP agenda. So then they undid that. And then the moderates all hopped on board, right? It was – I can sort of explain why it happened, but it was not a bargain over the substance of the policymaking process. And that's the question here, Right. And and your 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 good friend Senator Cassidy, I, I actually think is a key player in this, right? Because right now you have Collins and you have Heller raising objections. If Cassidy got up and said, "I agree with Dean, I agree with Susan, I really think the plan that she and I wrote earlier this year is the way to go," let's see what's what we can do there. Like that would be a game changer, 
right? Like it's really simple kind of press release statement because that would create a dynamic in which a bargaining had to take place, right? In which some Democrats might want to bargain with them and say, you know what, like we are willing to vote for something like that if that will kill repeal. Or Republicans might have to say, whoa, 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 you're now talking about doing something that doesn't roll back any of these taxes. Like let's 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 do some tax cuts. Like let's have a give and take. Let's have a bargain. But with him not doing that, there's like no – there's like a lot of discomfort and ill will it, like John McCain, right? Like he clearly he doesn't give a fuck, right? Like he's he he's in the Senate. He's always been an odd senator because he's extraordinarily popular, right? He's great at like being a politician, but he picks up issues and runs with them and then drops them like he was crusading against George W. Bush's tax cuts. But then he was against Obama partially rescinding them. And now he's for this much bigger, much more regressive tax bill, right? There's no internal logic to his thinking on domestic policy because he's really just there to do military stuff and like makes up positions on, on other things. And so if there was huge momentum for Cassidy Collins, I'm sure John McCain would be happy to vote for that. And if there's momentum for there's McConnell care, like he'll vote for that. And Cassidy, it's interesting because Cassidy Collins, like you could see such an, I mean, it would get better press coverage. You'd have much lower coverage losses. You can make a real federalist argument for it. It's really interesting that Cassidy is not pressing any kind of advantage here. I want to just make a couple quick points. One thing that we've not mentioned but is going to be important in this, reconciliation has a rule where they the, – the way it works, they cannot get less deficit reduction than the House had. But they actually have a lot more deficit reduction than the House had. So Mitch McConnell, just under the rules, has $200 billion roughly to play with, which he could use if he wanted to, to make the deductibles. I mean, there's a lot of things you can do with $200 billion. It's not as much money as you need to fix this bill or fix its coverage losses, but it does give him something to bargain with. He has room. Right. There are things that could be done. There are also things other people can do, but there are things Mitch McConnell can still do. Give a bunch of money on opioids. I mean, you could see it go in different ways. You made a really interesting point, uh, Sarah. I think you said somebody asked you who is Max Baucus. In theory, Orrin Hatch should be Max Baucus. Orrin Hatch is, I believe, chairman of the Senate Finance Committee right now. He is a known dealmaker, right? A longtime dealmaker. And he actually has written a health care plan. I think that he was the Senate sponsor of Yeah, the Companion to Better Way. The Companion to Better Way. So in theory, he has a lot of interest here. <laughs> he seems to be pulling a little bit back as an active, aggressive legislator and, and seems to have really taken a backseat. But it is just notable. He's given up this on behalf of his committee. He is not stepping in the middle. And sort of like Bacchus, he was known in the Republican Party as a dealmaker, worked with Kennedy constantly. Yeah. Um, I think he worked on CHIP. He was like a key player in the children's health insurance expansion. I mean, there are a couple of these guys still around. Like another person, I mean, Grassley is not running finance anymore, but Grassley could also be Bacchus. And it's like, just anybody who wanted to be could do this. And they're just not. But the other thing that, that goes to the point of where does the intellectual driving force on this stuff happen? Oftentimes within Republican administrations, if it comes from anywhere, it comes from the White House, right? There was in, I believe it was the 2005 State of the Union where George W. Bush came out with a quite aggressive health care plan that was interesting in its own ways and I think actually much more interesting than what we're seeing here, although it doesn't make a lot of sense within the Obamacare structure. Um, but it is notable just how much of a backseat the White House has taken. They, the president does not seem to understand or know about or care about health care at all, despite the fact that he will sometimes say that he knows a lot about it now. Mike Pence does not, you know, he's 
taking a negotiator's role, but not a very public role. You do not see Tom Price anywhere, right? He is not someone who appears to be very influential in this process. And they are just not playing the role that the Obama administration did of at the top using the president as a real focusing and forcing mechanism in terms of what the bill has to have, what are their bottom lines. You know, Donald Trump will come out and say like the House bill is mean, but he will not define what a non-mean bill looks like, and they're not and they're not doing anything more here. But also, the White House provided a huge amount of technical support during the Obamacare drafting. Peter Orzag and the OMB, um, Nancy and Deparle, and the sort of Office of Health Reform. I mean, there was a lot going on where they were trying to back up Congress because they just have a lot more to work with in terms of how much technical capacity can you bring to bear on a bill. Uh, you're just not seeing that in. A significant way here. I'm sure there's a little bit of that happening, but you know, given that the executive branch controls HHS, controls OMB, just has so much they can work with, they're just not playing a, a key role here. Well, at and all. one of the things I've noticed they're using their technical energy for is to like build the case that Obamacare is failing. So it's a lot less about like here's why this is a good bill, but like here's why Obamacare is such a disaster. So like they've started each week putting out this map of like how terrible the marketplace is and which counties have zero insurance companies signed up. So, th- so they're doing work to monitor the Affordable Care Act. They released a study a few weeks ago kind of like looking at how premiums have risen under the ACA. I, I feel like I see Tom Price around a little bit more. You know, he's has an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal today. He's been doing some public events. But the focus is typically Obamacare is a disaster. It's not a positive case for like why this bill would yeah. be good to fix it. Yeah, well, I just meant as a negotiator. Yes, not I agree him. with that. Yeah, and also just saying things that aren't true about Medicaid, yes. right? I mean, that's been like a key. They're all doing that. Role of his, but I mean, it's it's interesting. I mean, we've we've said this a million times throughout the course of this Trump care thing, but there does not appear to be a phase in the legislative process where anyone is saying, okay, if this passes and it comes into effect and then it's like X years down the road and people are like, hey, man, my healthcare situation is way worse. Like, what What about that? Like, what safeguard do we have that actually people's situation will get better? And that's just like not of concern. Whereas I think, you know, there were aspects of the Affordable Care Act that did not work out the way their architects thought they would work out. Um, obviously, like from simple things like having the website not work made them look really bad. But they seemed to be spending a lot of time worrying, at least in principle, about that kind of stuff. Like, would this work? Like, would people gain coverage? Because they thought it would it would reflect poorly on them if it if it didn't work. Whereas this whole thing is very much it's weird, right? It's a little just kind of like cliff jumping without without a plan. And it's like, if it sounds bad, if it's unpopular for all these people to lose Medicaid coverage, the solution to that is to say they aren't going to lose Medicaid coverage, not to either develop an argument that like a publicly defensible argument that that's okay, or to do anything about it. 
we'd all like to eat better, but you know, when it comes to snacks, it, it sometimes it, it's hard to get a trade off between like tasteless and boring or, or a bajillion calories. Um, and it, but it doesn't have to be that way. That's what's so great about Nature Box. It, it really lets you up your snack game. They got over 100 snacks. They taste great, and, and they're actually better for you. They're made with high quality, simple ingredients. No artificial colors. No artificial flavors. No artificial sweeteners. You can feel good about what you're eating. Uh, you know, I, I like their dried mango. They got these cool strawberry lemon fruit bars, and and also a, a bunch of good uh, sort of beef jerky type products. Uh, the crushed red pepper beef jerky is uh, delicious. Um, so you're going to find your new snack obsession at NatureBox because they're adding new snacks every month. It's inspired by their real customer feedback and the latest food trends. Uh, and it's really simple. You go to naturebox.com, you choose the snacks you want, and they get delivered right to your door. There's no risk. If you try one you don't like, don't eat it. They will replace it for free. Uh, so right now, the basic thing you need to know is you can save even more. NatureBox is offering Weeds fans three free snacks with your first order. When you go to naturebox.com slash weeds. That's naturebox.com slash weeds for three free snacks for your first order. Naturebox.com slash weeds. If I can transition us to the third thing, there is this like esoteric message, right, that they have given to the kind of intellectuals and and the wonks out there about this which is like for the for the mass market you say obamacare is a total failure and also no one is losing coverage and the cbo is just making stuff up and then to the elites what they're saying is that actually it's good that 12 million people are going to lose medicaid coverage because I read once a blog post in National Review that there was a study in Oregon that said it's better to not have Medicaid than, than to have it. Yes. So there, there's a lot of this. Ovik Roy, who's uh, I think emerged as the key Senate defender of this bill and will be on, on my uh, interview podcast next week, which I think will be an interesting conversation, but wrote in an op-ed the other day that researchers have found Medicaid doesn't offer health outcomes better than being uninsured. So – Right before this whole Senate health bill came out, uh, Ben Summers, Atul Gawande, and Catherine Baker released a, a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine called. This health is like and- a rock star health yeah, economist. It does get better, by the yeah. way. Like this is this is really it. Health. It's called health insurance coverage and health. But the recent evidence tells us, and I think that the the boldface name people will hear here is Atul Gawande because he's like a famous guy and he writes in the in the New Yorker. But actually, the real important name here in a way is Catherine Baker because Baker is – she was a member of George W. Bush's Council of Economic Advisors. She's an incredibly well-respected health economist at Harvard School of Public Health. But she was also the co-author of the Oregon Medicaid study that has become central to the Republican case that uh, Medicaid doesn't help people. I also want to give Ben a shout out, too, because he is also another like rock star. So basically, we're in yeah, awe of this great. entire. Yes. But he's done a lot of study of the Medicaid expansion and a lot of really influential yes. studies of the Massachusetts health coverage expansion. Totally. They're all great. I just mean one reason it's really important Baker is here yes. is that this is actually the clearest statement she has made on what is Medicaid worth because the Oregon Medicaid study has been misinterpreted really badly. I, I think it might be worth beginning with what they say about Oregon Medicaid and then going off into the sort of broader stuff they say about, about health insurance generally. So the Oregon Medicaid study, there's a lottery. I mean, it, it, it comes out of a situation that's like a dark satire of American healthcare. Oregon got some money to expand Medicaid, but not enough to expand it to all the people who needed it. So they held a lottery. And if you won the lottery, then you were a poor person who got health insurance. But if you didn't win the lottery, you were a poor person who didn't get health insurance. And then because these two groups were similar, this acted as a like a randomized control experiment. They set up a very good study design, blah, 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 blah. So what they basically found is that um, 
the, and they were only able to study it for two years among 10,000 people. So not that long, not that many people. So a lot of the things they couldn't look at, like they couldn't tell if it had any effect on mortality because the sample size wasn't big enough given how many people from that sample size you would expect to die. Like their mortality estimates were consistent with an 83% reduction in mortality or a 50% increase. Like you just you couldn't do anything there. Um, but what they found were a couple of things. One, Medicaid did work as insurance. People used a lot more health care. The doctors did accept them. They did get to go and, and, and use the health system more. Uh, it totally wiped out basically catastrophic health expenses. It really works as insulation from financial disaster during health care. They found that it had really substantial improvements in depression, um, a 30% relative reduction in rates of depressive symptoms. They found a very, very big increase in self-reported health, 25% increase in people saying they are in good or excellent health. That's actually a big deal because self-reported health has been validated as having predictive capacity on actual health. If you say you're in, if you self-report as being in poor health, you are much, much, much more likely to die, which implies that self-reported health is picking up real things. So the fact that there's a 25% increase in self-reported health, good days, is a very big deal. Um, it found an increase in diabetes treatment uh, that was significant. But what it didn't find were statistically significant changes in glycine. I'm going to mispronounce some of this probably, glycated hemoglobin, blood pressure, or cholesterol levels, which was surprising. People did expect particularly blood pressure. You would see a difference. There were some criticisms of the study that it did not it did not have enough people in it, so it wasn't really telling you that. But even if you believe that it does did nothing on any of those things, it just is not the case that increasing self-reported health that much, decreasing depression that much, increasing diabetes diagnosis and treatment, and protecting you from financial ruin is like no better than being uninsured. <laughs> that is just, like it is clearly better than being uninsured. So that's the Oregon study. Then there are all these other studies. I can keep talking or I can turn it over to one of you. No, keep your own or all. all right, you want to do the other studies. And sure. Then... So there are all these. So the problem with the Oregon study is it's small. It's, again, 10,000 people, two years, all kinds of things you can't tell from it. Like you can't even look at cancer treatment, for instance, in that study. Just not enough people in the study got cancer. But we do know Medicaid is working to get people into the healthcare system, and we believe that cancer treatments work. So you would expect that things like that would actually improve. So they looked at a bunch of other studies that are able to be – there are just a lot bigger um, and are able to look at things like death and mortality and cancer treatment, and all these other things. So one study compared three states implementing large Medicaid expansions in the early 2000s and used the fact that some states implemented these expansions and some didn't as a kind of natural experiment. And they found that there was a significant, statistically significant, 6% decrease in mortality over five years of follow-up. Um, another analysis of the same study, the same data set, showed the largest decreases in mortality were from deaths from what are called healthcare amenable conditions like heart disease, infections, and cancer. Uh, so that also suggested that it was the Medicaid expansion that was causing the, the decreased mortality. A study that Massachusetts 2006 reforms, it also found big reductions in all-cause mortality, healthcare amenable mortality. Um, overall, the study identified number needed to treat of 830 adults gaining coverage to prevent one death a year. Um, a more recent analysis of Medicaid's mortality found one life saved for every 239 to 316 adults gaining coverage. So these are, are quite significant. Um, they say at the end that the U.S. government, you, you can get into how much 
uh, a life is worth. And it's like this sort of very – it's an important but very kind of cold way of talking about it. But an analysis of mortality changes after Medicaid expansion suggests that expanding Medicaid saves lives at a cost of three hundred and twenty to $860,000 per life saved. Um, that's to say nothing of decreases in disability, decreases in mental stress, all the other things. We're just talking about life saved. Uh, by comparison, other public policies that reduce mortality have been found to average $7.6 million per life saved. So this is in terms of how much it costs to save a life. Actually, not a bad way of going about it. I want to make one final point here. There are other studies in here, but but basically you have these authors. They come to the conclusion health insurance clearly improves people's health. It clearly improves uh, mortality, and that includes Medicaid. But I do want to make one other point. Let's say you don't believe any of this shit. Let's say you think this is all garbage. It's all biased. Fine. You are really concerned about helping people on Medicaid, and you don't think Medicaid is any good. You might do a lot of things there. The one thing you would not do is take money we are spending on poor people's Medicaid and give it to rich people's tax cuts. Like that to me is where you see this thing is bullshit. It's just like straight <laughs> bullshit. Now, I'm not saying that everybody making this argument wants to move that money to rich people's tax cuts. But if they're supporting this bill, that is what it actually does. If somebody was coming out and saying, hey, I think – this is not the right way to help poor people. I think we should take all this money we're spending on Medicaid and just put it into a cash transfer to poor people and let them decide what to do with the money. That's actually an interesting debate. I'm not sure I agree with that. I probably don't actually. But nevertheless, you could definitely make that argument. Or you could say, I want to give them exactly as much money as we're spending now and let them buy private health insurance or give them more money than we're spending now so they can get even better private health insurance. I mean, there's a lot of things you could do that would – plausibly improve the health status or life outcomes of poor people on Medicaid more than the current Medicaid program. Just no one anywhere believes that that thing is cutting capital gains taxes, including a retroactive capital gains tax cut for rich people. So, Finn. <laughs> so there was this one line in, um, or actually it's two sentences in this report that I thought were really interesting and kind of like helped me think about how we think about the debate around Medicaid. So this is the last paragraph of the paper where authors kind of say, you know, there remain many unanswered questions about U.S. health policy, but whether enrollees benefit from that coverage is not one of the unanswered questions. They're talking about Medicaid. And I think it's kind of interesting to step back and see that mortality somehow has become like the defining thing of like how we decide or how Medicaid is being judged as like, is this working or is it not? When the research actually seems very, very clear there are all these other benefits going on in terms of, you know, mental health, financial protection, like how people feel about their actual lives, which, of course, makes sense that when you have someone around to take those surprise medical bills, you're probably going to feel a lot better and have a lot more financial protection. We have never, you know, you never see a debate around the um, tax subsidy for employer-sponsored coverage, the um, kind of um, – the fact that this isn't taxed, saying like, well, is that actually saving people who have employer-sponsored coverage? Are they, are they not dying because of this coverage? It's never really questioned. It really seems only questioned with Medicaid. There was another interesting study I read about in this study that I didn't even know existed. It was um, a study from 2008 of Medicare's implementation in 1965, where they had even more data and way more people to work with. So they looked at after med, this was, um, I think, Kate Baker and Amy Finkelstein, who's another woman who worked on the um, organ study, separate research they did in 2008, where they looked at the decade after Medicare's implementation and saw, you know, did people live longer? And they couldn't find any results. And generally, like, we think Medicare is good, like, we think it is a good paper, but they're actually, you know, at least according to 
Kate Baker, who's an author, I tend to trust very little data to suggest Medicare improved mortality after it was implemented. Um, and I thought that was an interesting moment that like made me pause because clearly like we think Medicare is good, that it's good that the elderly have coverage. But if that is the metric we're going to judge things by, you know, there's a lot of different programs that come into question. I guess another point about this would be that if you had a sort of strong suspicion that hysterical liberals and the American public's knee-jerk love of doctors was leading people to believe that Medicaid was incredibly useful, but that rigorous, well-designed studies show that it isn't. And also, you were like willing to take a tough political hit for like voting for a big Medicaid cut. You could structure the Medicaid cut so as to generate a large national sample of Oregon-style experimental data that would vindicate you, you know, three or four or five years down the road. Instead, they've come up with this. The cuts to Medicaid are both draconian and, like, bizarre. You know, they're incredibly – it's incredibly designed to hide the ball, right? So that, like, no one is actually taking responsibility for anything, and it's all being given as, like, quote-unquote flexibility to states so that various blue state state legislatures will basically decide, like, which of their children they need to save. And it all – it's the method of people with guilty conscience and criminal intent, not of people who believe that this is going to be a triumph where people are like, man, like the libtard said it would be terrible if you couldn't go to the doctor when you were sick. But actually, it's worked out amazing. And I'm grateful for all the time that I've saved, like not even bothering with these kind of visits to, to get my diagnosis. Um, but I I had underrated how deeply entrenched this willfully dishonest misreading of the Oregon study had become in the sort of like smart conservative thought leadership class. Like this is everywhere, you know, like it's it's um all over uh, Patrick Ruffini's tweets. Uh, Erica Greeter from from Texas Monthly has been talking about this, shaping her whole understanding of of the bill. Um, it's the reason Avic Roy is, is purports to be scandalized that people believe that millions of people being denied any healthcare coverage year after year for infinity will cost people's lives, and it, it's bizarre you know it's 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 a it's a really odd sort of reading of a thing it's a it's a strange thing to believe and it's really become fundamental though because we're seeing that this policy making is really an elite driven process right this bill was not crafted by sort of rounding up a bunch of people who love guns and hate abortion and then asking them what they would like to see from the American healthcare system. Because that's how American politics works, right? Like the, the building blocks of American politics are these sort of identity affinity groups, right? And, you know, Democrats is like, it's like black people and Latinos and Jews and atheists. And then you have to, and then you have to have like actual policy, right? And that does to it's formed in a certain kind of way. The conserv building blocks of conservatism are, you know, their evangelical churches, their gun ownership, their now increasingly rural identity. Uh it's like whiteness as a generic concept. But the 
policy process is comes from a relatively small number of people in a top-down way. It's not designed to help those constituents. It's not designed to uh, do what those people subjectively want. It's not designed to align with the checks that Republican politicians have been cashing rhetorically. But this is the reason that the people behind Republican healthcare policy are telling themselves like it's all going to be okay. And it's such an incredibly thin read of evidence, if, if you even want to call it evidence. Um, and I've been I've been surprised. I mean, I, I remember this study being sort of talked about, but to see it like come back in, in this context, it, it, it took me aback a little because, you know, people will say all kinds of things in like a, a heated legislative debate. Um, but but it like stuck years later. And noting on that point of what do people who love guns and hate abortion want and the people they vote for want, like Donald Trump, notably one of his big fights with the Republican Party, he would tweet things like, I am the first and only Republican candidate to call for no cut to Medicaid, Medicare, Social Security. Like Medicaid is a popular program among Republican voters. It's not as popular as it is among Democrats, but a popular program. So so this is not this is not Republicans, you know, feeding their what what their base wants. This is what their elites want. I do want to make one sort of very big picture point about all this. If you ask me things that I am prepared to believe, if, if there's enough evidence that are not widely believed. One of the ones that is very high up on that list is that medical care is on net worth a lot less than we think it is. That a huge amount of healthcare is wasted. That there is really, really overwhelming evidence that in terms of what we get when we go into the emergency room or the doctor's office, that consistently care is delivered in suboptimal ways. A lot of the care that is delivered to us is not based on good studies, is not based on the most modern evidence. Um, the sort of sequencing of care is often wrong. Medical errors are, are very common. It is very possible that our intuition about how much health insurance buys us by buying us medical care is quite wrong. And that is true not just for people on Medicaid, but true for people on Medicare, true for people on private health insurance. There are not good studies around this stuff. We had the RAND study, which was a double blind in the 70s, a long time ago in a very different um, medical uh, architecture. We have you know, the, the Medicaid organ study recently, then these other studies. But we re it is very hard to get a, a good pinpoint estimate for other things. We don't do interesting studies really on employer-based health insurance, which is what a lot of us get. Medicare, we do not do a lot of good studies on because it's universal already. So it's hard to do double blinds. Uh, I, I am I am open to the idea that we just spend too much and get too little from our health insurance system. Now, the reason we do that, though, is that we it is understood, not just understood, but a revealed preference of all of us, including all these people making these arguments, none of whom appear to me to go uninsured by choice. Uh, it is a it is something that we believe that it is just incredibly important to being able to live a good life, to know that when you are sick when your wife is sick, when your kids are sick, you can take them to a doctor and not worry about it. That when the doctor says you need this treatment or that one, even if maybe that treatment is not going to work for reasons you don't know about, that you are able to get it. Like that is important to all of us. My wife just came back from India and has just had a stomach bug. And, it, and like we've been talking about, should she go to the doctor? And I'm really glad that we are – that she is able – like if that had turned out to be a parasite or something dangerous, that we could have gotten her to get good medical care. Now, maybe she would have gone. They would have just been like, it's a stomach bug. Don't worry about it. And so that would have done nothing for her um, health uh, outcomes. 
But just the knowledge of that is important. So yeah, like I think it is possible we spend too much on medical care. I think that one thing that was true in the Obamacare debate, which is not true here, was that those questions were taken very seriously. There were a huge number of efforts being begun in that bill to try to begin to separate high-value care from low-value care. They set up PCORI, which is meant to you know create comparative effectiveness reviews. I mean, all these different things the Republicans gave them no help on. It would be good to find out what works and to design health insurance so we get more out of it. Um, we also know that one of the difficulties in health insurance is that a huge amount of costs come from people who are not just very sick but who are quite hard to treat. Something you will sometimes see in these debates is like, oh, there are these people who don't even sign up for Medicaid though they're eligible or might give up health insurance you know, if there's no mandate, et cetera, et cetera. They don't value it at all. But we know that a lot of people – um, they're weakly tied to the health system. Some people have fear of doctors, agoraphobia. When you get down into the folks who are the hardest cases, it's actually very hard to treat them. Uh, that's why they cost so much um, because they let things get really bad. So societally and for them, like it's, it's hard to help them. We have a lot of programs that are meant to do it. How to structure that kind of push of care is a really interesting, important thing that we're not thinking about here at all. It would be good. If we could get to a place in this country where we agreed people should have insurance and then we should spend a tremendous amount of time making sure that we are getting great bang for that buck, that that insurance is buying us a lot of health. But we're not having that discussion at all. And the idea that discussion instead is being had is maybe just poor people shouldn't have health insurance. Maybe the rest of us should. But we're going to misinterpret a study or two to say, hey, this insurance doesn't matter for poor people. Let's give them something they can't even use because it has a $6,000 deductible. It's awful. And and it's not where that research actually leads you. Like it is not – if you took a reasonable conclusion on this stuff and you said, hey, you know, maybe health insurance doesn't work as well as we think. Maybe the medical care we're buying is not doing as much for us as we think. And maybe we're not as good as we need to be at making sure people who do have things like Medicaid are going regularly to the doctor to get their blood pressure controlled or are adhering to the medications we give them for cholesterol. Those are important, interesting significant, morally central problems to solve. And just taking Medicaid away from people is not solving them. Well, with that sunny thought. Yeah, I think uh, that's where <laughs> we leave things. Uh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll be back in a, in a couple of days talking about uh, House Republicans' effort to write a next budget for, for the following year, where the main question is shaping out to be how much food can they take away from hungry families? Um, it's it's a very, it's, it's an interesting conceptual debate. Uh, does does eating help people um, af- after we, we wrestle with the with the medical issue? Um, and, and tomorrow there'll be uh, the, the, the second episode of, of Worldly, Vox's uh, Foreign Affairs and uh, National Security podcast. Uh, it's excellent. Uh, you, you, should, you should definitely check it out. Um, thanks to, uh, to, to Ezra and Sarah Thanks to our producer, Bird Pinkerton. Uh, thanks to you all for, for listening. Uh, check us out uh, on our Facebook group. The Weeds is on the Vox Media Podcast Network, uh, one of the greatest podcast networks out there. Definitely the top 10. Easily. 